0: And I invite you to take your copy of scripture this morning and turn to Psalm 96, Psalm 96. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 499, page 499. So Psalm 96, and I'll read the psalm in its entirety. Um, we have been in a series in the Psalms, and we started at Psalm 92 in this series, and we're going to go through to Psalm 98. Uh, But this morning we are looking at Psalm 96. So I'll begin reading for us in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that is in it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for Your Word And Lord, we pause now as we turn to the Scriptures and we pray for Your help. We pray, Lord, for the presence and the power of Your Spirit to be among us. We pray, Lord, that You would give us minds to understand and eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, we pray that the spirit of this psalm would take resident in our own heart and that we would glorify You even among the nations. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, William Plummer has said of this psalm that, quote, this is a missionary hymn for all ages of the church. This is a missionary hymn for all ages of the church. And I entitled our message this morning, Worship the Lord, all the earth. And what we'll see this morning in our psalm is that worship is the fuel that propels God's people to fulfill His mission in the world. As we've been walking through these psalms, Psalm 92 to Psalm 98, we've been looking at the kingship psalms. That's what these psalms are known as, the kingship psalms. And through these psalms, we've seen that the theme of worship has appeared again and again. For example, in Psalm 92, the psalm is entitled, A song for the Sabbath. So Psalm 92 is a song that is to be recited. It's to be sung when God's people gather for worship. Or last week in Psalm 95, the psalmist directs us to worship the Lord with joyful song and with reverent submission and with a genuine heart. And now, this week, we see in Psalm 96 that worship is not merely a private matter. But rather, worship is the fuel that propels God's people to declare His glory among the nations. Now, many of the psalms that we come uh, in contact with as we work through the psalter, many of them have a heading or a title that give us some sense of the context of the psalm, or maybe the author who wrote the psalm. Now, you'll notice in Psalm 96 that there's no heading, there's no title. Having said that, we do know something about the context of this psalm. In fact, this psalm, and you may have caught on to this earlier in the service, Shane read for us from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, this psalm is is cited almost in its entirety in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 22 to 33. Now, in that passage, in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, we see that David is king over Israel, and this is what's happening in First Chronicles 16. David is king over Israel, and David has a desire to take the ark of God and to transport it to the city of Jerusalem. Now, of course, the ark of God represented the presence of God. In particular, it represented God's presence among His people. And so with great care, David and the people of Israel transport the ark of God to the city of Jerusalem. And it will then reside there in the tabernacle until David's son Solomon builds the temple where the ark will be housed. Now some people understand this event, the transporting of the ark of God to the city of Jerusalem to be the crowning moment of David's kingship. It was a day full of sacrifices and great rejoicing and thanksgiving. And in that moment... David instructed Asaph and his brothers to lead the people of God in singing this psalm, in singing Psalm 96. And in this psalm, what we see is that David and the people of God, they worship God for being their God, for being the God of Israel. But it's interesting because they go on to worship God for not only being their God, but for being the God of all the earth. And it becomes clear in this psalm that David and the people of God understand that through David's rule and reign, and through their witness to the nations, that the nations of the earth will come to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, as their God. That the nations of the earth will acknowledge Yahweh as the one who is worthy of of their glory and their praise. This is why William Plummer says of this psalm that this is a missionary hymn for all the ages of the church. And my prayer is that the heart of this psalm will in fact become the song of our church. That this will be the song, the spirit of our church. That our cry would be, That God would be exalted among the nations. We're going to look at the psalm this morning in four parts. First, sing to the Lord. Secondly, the Lord is great. Third, give glory to the Lord. And fourth, the Lord is coming to judge. First of all, sing to the Lord. Look there in verses 1 to 3. O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day, declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. Now you notice in these first three verses that there are six imperatives or six commands. You see there in verses 1 to 2, we are told to sing three times. In verse 2 again, bless In verse 2 again, tell. And then in verse 3, declare. So six imperatives, six commands in these opening verses. And the threefold charge to sing is especially compelling. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. So this is a call to worship. We are being called to worship and to sing to the Lord. But then we see in these verses as well that worship is, in fact, the proper foundation and basis for mission. Notice here in our passage how worship leads to mission. Look there again. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Now notice this. Tell. Tell of his salvation from day to day declare his glory among the nations his marvelous works among all the peoples do you know that actually when it when it transitions there in verse 2 to tell of his salvation that phrase there when the old testament is translated into greek that phrase there is translated by the greek word agalizo, from which we get the word evangelize It means to bear the good news of God's salvation and deliverance. So, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless His name. Declare the good news of His salvation and deliverance from day to day. And declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. And listen, my friends, that's what we do in worship, isn't it? When we gather together on Sunday mornings to worship the Lord, that's what we do. We gather together to declare the glory of God, and we gather together to declare His marvelous works. And in particular, we gather together to declare the glory of God as it is revealed in the marvelous work of His redemption and salvation in Jesus Christ. And that is exactly what. What the nations need to hear. Do you see that to sing and to worship. Leads to telling and declaring. Think of it in terms of our mission statement as a church. Our mission as a church is to glorify God. By making disciples. Who enjoy, live and proclaim the gospel. Now we need to understand there is a connection between enjoying the gospel and proclaiming the gospel. They are not distinct entities separate from one another, but rather one leads to the other. It's as we more fully enjoy the gospel and revel in the joy of God's free grace to us through Jesus Christ that we will then be increasingly compelled to share that good news with others. So, what does this look like? What does it look like practically in our lives for worship to lead to mission? Well, I don't think it means necessarily that if you sing a really good song that you like one Sunday, then you'll suddenly get the courage to share the gospel with your neighbor. That may happen. But more, I think what the psalmist is getting at here is that a life of worship leads to a life of mission. As we increasingly delight ourselves in the Lord, as we increasingly delight ourselves in His Word and in prayer, as we increasingly study God's Word and fellowship with other believers, we become increasingly burdened to share His glory and His grace and His mercy with others. And of course this has implications for us corporately as a gathered church. I mean, this psalm is about the people of God gathering together to worship God. And it's as we devote ourselves to gathering together and worshiping the Lord and delighting and singing of His redemption and hearing the good news of His gospel proclaimed that we will be increasingly eager to ensure that this glorious gospel is proclaimed among the nations So if we want to be a mission-minded church, then we must be a people who are truly taken with God. If we want to proclaim the gospel to others, the good news that God has saved us and is transforming us by the death and resurrection of Jesus, then we must increasingly, this must increasingly, this gospel must increasingly become the true joy and treasure of our hearts. Andy Johnson states it this way in his book entitled Missions. He says, quote, The heart for God-glorifying missions starts with joy in the gospel. What this may mean is that the best way to encourage your church in missions is to stop talking about missions for a time and instead talk more about the gospel. I've seen churches that have tried to get their members excited about missions without being excited about the gospel. The result was pitiful. Churches won't extend themselves to commend the gospel until they deeply cherish the gospel, end of quote." In other words, they won't tell unless they sing, and they won't proclaim unless they enjoy, and they won't go unless they worship. Worship is the right foundation and basis for mission. The second thing we see in our text this morning is the Lord is great. So first of all, sing to the Lord. And then secondly, the Lord is great. So in these first three verses, we saw that there's these six imperatives, to sing and to tell and to declare and to bless. And we might ask the psalmist, well, why? Why are we to sing? Why are we to tell? And in verses 4 through 6, the psalmist gives us the answer. Four, verse 4, For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now, notice the logic here as the psalmist speaks to the people of God. He says that they are to worship God and they are to invite others to worship God not because the nations fail to worship but because the worship of the nations is misdirected. They worship but they worship false gods or as verse 7 or I'm sorry verse 5 says they worship worthless idols. Now actually in the original language here in the Hebrew there's a play on words. So, the word translated gods is Elohim. And the word translated worthless idols is Elalim. So, the way we might read it is for all the Elohim of the peoples are Elalim. Uh, the ESV study Bible says that if we were to translate this into English, it might sound something like this um, These mighty beings are mighty useless. There's a play on words here. The Elalim are nobodies, they are a no thing. And this is much like the ridicule that the prophet Isaiah hurls upon the nations as they construct for themselves worthless idols. In Isaiah chapter 44, Isaiah the prophet writes, he, speaking of the nations, he plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, that is the wood, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. They know not. "'Nor do they discern, for He has shut their eyes, "'so they cannot see in their hearts, "'so that they cannot understand. "'No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, "'Half of it I burned in the fire. "'I also baked bread on its coals. "'I roasted meat and have eaten. "'And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? "'Shall I fall down before a block of wood? "'He feeds on ashes. "'A deluded heart has led him astray, "'and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Now, it's important for us to see that this is the context in which the psalmist, in which the prophets of the Old Testament were ministering. Because some might dismiss the psalmist words here by saying, well, you know, the psalmist was antiquated and unenlightened. And the only reason why he was so brash is to demand that others would worship the God of his choosing is because this was so long ago. He probably didn't travel much. He didn't know the peoples and the cultures that existed around him chose to worship different gods. Who is he? Who is the psalmist? Who is the prophet Isaiah to call the nations to accept his God, their God, to be the true God? But my friends, understand that the authors of the Old Testament were more than aware that the different peoples and cultures of the world had chosen to worship other gods. The people of God in the Old Testament were surrounded by nations and cultures that chose to worship the Asherim and the Baals and Molech. Their times, in fact, were not that different from our own. In fact, it was especially popular at The time at certain times in Israel's history to worship Yahweh, the God of Israel, and at the same time to worship all the other gods of the nations too. So someone might conclude, there's no reason for us to choose among these many gods. Why don't we cover all our bases? And we can worship Yahweh, and we can worship all these other gods as well, and we might get some benefits from worshiping Yahweh, and we might get some benefits from worshiping these other gods as well. The most important thing is that we're sincere, that we're devoted. Does that not sound familiar? And it's exactly in that context that the psalmist declares, Sing to the Lord, for He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. In fact, it's a similar context in which Jesus and the apostles ministered. The people of Jesus' day were not opposed to worship. The people of Jesus' day were not opposed to spiritual things. In fact, they loved to worship. They worshipped an array of gods, Zeus and Hermes and Artemis and Athena and so many others. And it is in that context that Jesus declared, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. It is in that very context that the Apostle Peter declares, there is only one name under heaven by which you must be saved and that is the name of Jesus. And of course, this is the context in which many missionaries minister today. I think about the nation of India, a nation that I had the privilege of visiting a number of years ago and ministering there. And many people in the nation of India worship literally billions of different gods. The other day, just about a week ago, I was talking to a missionary and we were talking about Buddhism and this missionary was sharing with me that there is actually more than one Buddha in Buddhism. In fact, Buddhists believe that there have been innumerable Buddhas over the eons. The Dalai Lama is actually considered a living Buddha today. And it is in this context, in the context of people worshipping billions of gods and various gods, That missionaries proclaim, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. You see, the missionaries' call for the nations to worship the God of the Bible is in fact a call for the nations to recognize that the God of the Bible is superior to their gods. Now, some might protest and say, well, isn't that unloving? Isn't that unkind? How could they make such a claim? Well, it's not unloving and unkind because they are speaking the truth. Think about it in the context even of the Old Testament. Who today worships the Asherim? Who today worships Baal or Molech? Nobody. For the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Think about it in the context of the New Testament, in the context of Jesus and the apostles. Who is it today that worships Zeus and Hermes and Artemis and Athena? Almost no one. Just as the psalmist declares, all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. And in a similar fashion, today the church, the call of missionaries today is come, we invite you to worship with us the one true and living God. For the Lord is great and He has made the heavens. Third, give glory to the Lord. So sing to the Lord. Secondly, we see the Lord is great. And then third, give glory to the Lord. Look there in verses 7 through 9, and we read these words. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. So we said in the first three verses that there are six imperatives or six commands Well, now as we come to this third stanza, verses 7 through 9, we see that there are seven imperatives, or seven commands. Ascribe we see three times in verses 7 and 8, and then we see bring in verse 8, and come in verse 8, and worship in verse 9, and tremble in verse 9. And it's often been pointed out that the verses here in Psalm 96 are strikingly similar to the opening verses of Psalm 29. So Psalm 29 opens this way. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. But there's a distinction between Psalm 29 and Psalm 96. They're very similar. But in Psalm 29, it is the heavenly beings who are being addressed, the angels. But here in Psalm 96... It's the families of the earth. Do you see the difference? What's taking place here in Psalm 96 is that the families of the earth, in other words, pagans, those who do not know God, they are being called to forsake their idols and to engage in the activity of the angels to worship the one true and living God. Once again, we see here as the call goes from the people of God worshiping in verses 1-3, to calling the people of God to worship, now it goes out to the nations. Nations, families of the earth, ascribe glory to the Lord. Once again, we see that the ultimate goal of missions is the worship of God. In fact, this word, LORD, and you see it in all caps there in your translation of the Bible, when it's in all caps like that, it refers to Yahweh, the covenantal name of God in the Old Testament. And that word Lord or Yahweh is used four times just in these verses. And th- this psalm here has many themes, but the one psalm that dominates this theme that runs through or dominates this psalm and runs throughout the psalm is the rightful place and supremacy of the Lord, of Yahweh. In fact, that word Lord or Yahweh is used ten times in just these 13 verses. Sing to the Lord. Ascribe glory to the Lord. Worship the Lord. That, my friends, is the cry of the psalmist, and it is, in fact, the heart of missions. In our time, there's probably no one who has more compellingly and clearly articulated this truth then John Piper, who is a Christian pastor and theologian. In his book entitled, Let the Nations Be Glad, he states it this way. is the opening paragraph of the book. Quote, "...missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man." When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever." End of quote. And see, this is what's happening in missions. This is what's happening in this psalm here, in Psalm 96. It is the act of calling, missions is the act of calling others, namely the nations, to glory in God. And how will the nations glory in God? Well, think about it. Almost everyone in this room this morning could be categorized as the nations, as the Gentiles. It's essentially anyone who's not a Jew is not originally a member of the people of God. And how do we glory in God? We glory in God when the confession of the Apostle Paul becomes our confession, that we will boast in nothing else except the cross of Jesus Christ. This is how the nations come to glory in God. They come to recognize that they are sinners, that they cannot save themselves. This is how we glory in God, right? We recognize that we're sinners. We cannot save ourselves. But that God in His mercy and grace has offered Jesus Christ as the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. And by His resurrection from the dead, He offers us life in Him. Missions is the work of gathering worshipers who will glory in the saving, finished work of Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls and who glorify Him By walking in submission to his lordship and reign. So sing to the Lord. The Lord is great. Give glory to the Lord. And then fourth, the Lord is coming to judge. The Lord is coming to judge. So you remember there's a pattern here in the psalm. So in verses 1 to 3, we're told sing, tell, declare, bless. And then in verses 4 through 6, we're told why. For the Lord is great. And then in verses 7 through 9, the nations are called to ascribe glory to the Lord, to worship Him, right? And now in verses 10 through 13, we are told why the nations are to ascribe glory to Him, why they are to worship Him. Look there in verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. So why should the nations ascribe glory to the Lord? Why should they worship Him and honor Him? because He reigns and He is coming to judge. Now this should elicit, this truth that the Lord reigns and is coming to judge should elicit at least two responses. The first is repentance, and the second is rejoicing. The first is repentance. Look there in verse 10. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the people with equity. So God reigns and He will judge. And the implication, therefore, is that all need to make sure that they are right before this awesome and terrifying judge. So on the one hand, we need to be honest and upfront here. On the one hand, as Christians, the message we proclaim is a message of judgment. God is holy, and He cannot and will not turn a blind eye to sin. And on the other hand, the message that we proclaim as Christians is a message of good news. Because all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has directed the judgment that they deserve to His Son, who bore on the cross all the wrath and judgment that they were worthy of, so that they might be freed and forgiven and justified before God. Understand, my friends, that the Bible tells us that this is, in fact, our only hope of salvation. So that worship of the Lord and submission to His Lordship is not just one viable option among several attractive life choices. I mean, some people approach the gospel that way, right? Some people approach the message of the Bible that way. Well, I could do that. And I could imagine finding some benefits that would be attractive to me. Or I could do this thing over here and at the same time show some acknowledgement to God on the side and maybe come up with a good mix of the two that suits me well. Or I could politely refuse it all and get on with my own plans which seem much more satisfying to me. But understand, my friends, do you see it here in this psalm? That the Creator and Judge of the universe is not offering options. He will come to judge. He will be acknowledged and worshipped above all the other gods. And either we will be found justified in His Son... Or we will be found to be a rebel in opposition to His rule and reign. And we will be eternally condemned. So the question then is, have you repented? Have you turned from your sins? Are you trusting in the Lord Jesus? And are you offering your life to Him in worship and submission? The second response, though, to this truth that the Lord reigns and He is coming to judge, the second response is rejoicing. And this is clearly the emphasis in this psalm. Look there in verses 11 to 13. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. So what we see here is that for the people of God, the coming judgment of God is a source of great hope and rejoicing. We see that the people of God can look forward to the day of God's judgment because often in this world, justice is so rare. Now, we may not all be sensitive to this, but it is such a reality. I remember just one, one example. I remember in the early 2000s taking a trip to the Ukraine. And this was shortly after the Ukraine had been freed from the uh, control of the former Soviet Union. And our team was bringing food, uh, free food and supplies and clothes to local orphanages in Odessa, Ukraine. And the custom officers that we met there as we were trying to enter into the country, of course, they knew we were Americans. And so they came up with this fee that we were going to have to pay if we wanted to see the supplies come into the country. We told them that it was for an orphanage, they were free supplies, all that. They didn't care, they wanted the fee. And so we met. Some, thankfully, we met some Ukrainian nationals there. They were coming to pick us up from the airport. And so they knew that this fee that these custom officers were coming up with was bogus. And so they wrangled with the custom officers for a while, and we were able to go into the country without paying the fee. But then I also remember that when we uh, got into the country, we stayed with a local pastor and his family. And the son of that pastor, he was responsible for our transportation for the week. And so he would drive us around in the car. But I also remember that every time he saw a police officer and we were in the car, he would turn to go the opposite direction or try to find a side street and find another route to our destination. And I asked him, why? Why are you always trying to avoid the police? And he said, because if if you come across the police, they oftentimes are going to come up with some infraction, some bogus infraction, and they're going to charge you, give you some kind of ticket, and then they'll try to work out a deal. So they come up with this infraction. They say, oh, you're going to have to pay $75 fine. But if you pay me now $40, then you won't, have to make, you won't have to appear in court. And what I saw when I was in the Ukraine and learned later as well from others is that from the top down at every level, the nation was just riddled with corruption. My friends, we don't always fully appreciate that, but so many people in the world live under those conditions. So many people. And the coming of the Lord, the psalmist is telling us here, the coming of the Lord marks the end of moral and political corruption. The coming of the Lord marks the end of the rule of Satan. The coming of the Lord marks the end of sin and disease and natural disasters and broken relationships and death. The coming of the Lord marks the beginning of shalom true peace, true rest, when God makes all things right. When the Lord comes, there will be no more orphans or widows or disease. There will be no more starvation or pain or tears. There will be no more military conflicts or hurricanes or genocide or death. God will make all things new. And the Apostle Paul tells us that this is in fact what the creation longs for, that all of creation is longing for the coming of the Lord. In Romans chapter 8 verse 19, Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And where would the Apostle Paul get an idea like that? Well, maybe he would get an idea like that from Psalm 96, because in Psalm 96, the psalmist is beckoning creation to sing and to rejoice and to cry out with rejoicing at the prospect of the coming of the Lord. Do you see it there? Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fill it. Let the field exult and everything in it. And my friends, if you have sensed in your soul, and I know you have at some point, if you have sensed in your soul a longing for justice, for righteousness, for things in this world to be made right, it's because God created you with that longing. You are reflecting a longing that exists in all creation. God has created you to long for His coming and for His righteous judgment. Creation longs for his coming. And let me just say this as well as we wrap up these verses here. This text, just these few verses here at the end of Psalm 96, should banish forever the idea that God is opposed to our joy, that God is the enemy of our joy. That real joy is to be found in sin and wickedness. These verses here should banish that lie forever. Do you see how these verses here, the last few verses in Psalm 96, are bursting with rejoicing, bursting with joy and gladness and freedom and liberation? One author says, quote, where God rules, His humblest creatures can be themselves. Where God is, there is singing. Another author says, quote, all this takes place before Yahweh who comes to judge the earth, that judgment will liberate the world, both people and creation, from all oppressors, setting creation loose to enjoy the freedom of the glory of the children of God, end of quote. When God comes to judge and when God makes all things right, creation and all of God's people will burst with joy and celebration and life. So the Lord is coming to judge, and the two proper responses to the coming judgment of the Lord are one, to repent, and two, to rejoice. So Psalm 96 teaches us this truth that worship is the fuel for missions that propels God's people to spread God's glory among the nations. It's as we are filled with a joy and delight in worshiping God that then we are enabled and empowered to call the nations to join in that worship as we close, I just want to give a couple of recommendations. So, if you're here this morning, and I know there are a number of people like this here this morning, if you're here this morning and you already have a burden, a passion to see the gospel go to the nations and God's name glorified among the nations, or if you're here this morning, it's a separate category, if you're here this morning, and maybe you haven't, had that in the past. But something this morning from this text has stirred that in you. You've seen it in this passage. I want to know more about that. I want to learn more about that. For either of those two groups of people, there are two books I want to recommend. One is Let the Nations Be Glad. Now this is my old copy from, I guess this was like in the 80s or 90s or something. There's a new version of this okay, that you can get, but it's Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions by John Piper. This, probably as well as anything, reflects our theology of missions as a church. Outstanding book, has had a tremendous impact on international missions. The second book is this. It's called Missions, and it's by Andy Johnson. Okay, Missions by Andy Johnson. And uh, this book probably represents, as well as anything, our philosophy of ministry as a church in terms of pursuing international missions. So if you want to know more about spreading God's glory among the nations through the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are two excellent resources and encourage you to get them. If you don't want to read this whole book, just read the first three chapters. They're outstanding. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for Your Word. And Lord, we thank You that You have called us to worship You, to give You glory and praise and honor. And Father, we thank You for how You have revealed your grace and mercy to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ that not only enables us to worship you, but, Lord, as we consider your grace, as we consider your mercy, we are compelled to worship you. And, Father, we pray that as we delight in who you are, that, Lord, our worship would not just be a private matter, but, Lord, that we would be eager to share this good news with others, to call the nations, to call all peoples to glory in your grace and in your goodness. Take your word now and apply it to our lives, we pray. In Christ's name we ask it.